Good morning. Isn't that an awesome opportunity that Pastor John had? Isn't that just God's grace to give that to him one last time at least to be at uh, Angel Stadium and have everyone cheering? That, uh, what an honor for, for him. That's just the way God works. He gives us what we don't deserve just to encourage us. So I'm, I'm just so excited about that opportunity that he has had. And the opportunity, they're excited about the opportunity to be here with you. We enjoy being at The Rock. We love it. We love it because it's, we found a church that really honors God's Word. And not only do people here, want, do you want to know God's Word, but you want to change to live according to God's Word. But more than that, we <laughs> want to become like the God who wrote the book and uh, to know him, to know him intimately, and that really resonates with me and with my family, and we just enjoy our time being with you. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me in them to the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to let Pastor John do Revelation. I'm going to uh, uh, turn to the Gospel of Mark, and uh, Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, verse 30, Mark chapter 4, verse 30, we read, And he said, What can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger then all the garden plants and puts out large branches so the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. In his book, Seeds of Greatness, Dennis Wheatley describes a winner. In that book, he says, a winner is someone who knows where they're going and what they're going to do along the way. In other words, a person who's a winner, in his definition, is someone who has to have two essential components. They've got to know where they're going. They've got to have a plan. They've got to have an ambition. They've got to have a destination. And in addition to that, they have to, uh, they have to know what they're going to do along the way. They have to know how they're going to make their dream a reality. How they're going to accomplish that vision how they're going to put wheels on it. I mean, motivational speakers are great. They got the vision down pat, right? This is what you should do. If you can dream it, you can do it. But they don't tell you how to do it. It's one thing to have a vision, but how are we going to make it happen? Unless you have got both those things together, you're not a winner. You're not going to accomplish much. I mean, if you've lived long at life, you've experienced the fact that you have to have both those components together. You probably were taught that by a family member, maybe an uncle. Maybe it was at a Thanksgiving dinner. Whole family came around the table and you ate first, seconds, and some thirds. But it was the second in the pie that really did it. That caloric burst into your bloodstream that uh, caused caution to be thrown to the wind. And as you sat down on the sofa making a larger dent than normal, 
as the family was gathered around, you just stated as fact something you only just began thinking about. You said, I'm going to become an architect. And suddenly there was quiet. And maybe an uncle who liked you said from the side, is that true? An architect? Yeah. Well, what kind of architecture are you going to get into? Are you going to do residential? Are you going to do commercial? Are you going to do uh, uh, special consignments with wealthy patrons? And, and where are you going to study for that? Uh, are you going to, uh, which is the best school? And what scholarships are available? And what do you do for housing? And, and how do you tend to pay for this? And you're going, oh, I, I, I will, I'll need to figure that out. Yeah, you better. Because a grand dream is one thing, but without plans, it's not going to come anywhere. But if you weren't fortunate enough to have an uncle to help you, maybe your banker was of some assistance. Perhaps you uh, have a hobby. You in your garage, you're pretty good at making these little things with your um, homemade equipment. You call them widgets. And you take these widgets and you go to craft sales or you go to swap meets and you sell them. And you can make a few bucks every time you sell one. You get a little bit of extra money. It, doesn't pay the mortgage, but it helps with the groceries. But every week you're saying to yourself, I could do better. Instead of just doing this on the side, I bet you if I put my mind to it, I could become the greatest widget manufacturer in the entire Southwest. Yeah, you just think about it on occasion. But one day, your wife says to you, go get a loaf of bread and some milk or something, and you're on your way to Albertsons, and on your way, you realize that one of those widgets is in the back seat. And you pick it up and say, I know. I'm going to stop at my bank manager and ask for a loan because so I, I want to become the largest widget manufacturer in the Southwest. So you go and you walk in, stop in. And he happens to be free. So you stop in and you say, hey, how are you doing? You remember me? Anyway, I would like two, four, six. Okay, just make it 10 million. And here's a widget. I've got what it is. And I've decided I would like to become the largest widget. You know how it goes. So he's, and he looks at you and says, really, you would like $10 million to make lots of those? I said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. He says, well, just before I write you the check, perhaps you could just answer a couple of questions for me. You go, sure, shoot. Said, okay, um, how much do they cost per unit? And what's the uh, profit per unit? And how long do they last? And do you expect repeat customers? Or are you going to have to find new ones? And what's your marketing strategy plan for that? Are you going to go local, national, global? Are you going to do internet, web-based? Is that set up? Do you have a web developer? Who's going to host that? What kind of security do you have? And besides, is this the only product you have? Are you going to add more? Are you going to do research and development? And who's going to do your R&D? And are you going to manufacture? You're not going to do it in your garage, are you? Who's going to set up the equipment? And where in the world are you going to house all this stuff? And what about the lease arrangements? And how are you going to get workers? And have you thought about your workers' health care. <laughs> and you go, maybe I'll come back next week. He says, you do that. Come back next week with a business plan. Because I don't give $10 million to someone without a business plan. Vision is wonderful. Without plans, you're not a winner. You're a loser. And you and I know that's true. That we have to have a plan, a realistic plan, to go with our vision. That's why we believe the old saw, that to fail to plan is to plan to... And the bigger the dream, the more important the plan is. Right? The bigger the dream, the more important the plan is. 
I think that's why in Mark chapter 4, the disciples, I think they were getting a little bit nervous about Jesus. Just a little bit nervous. Because he had come on the scene with a tremendous vision. Back in Mark chapter 1, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, in that little verse, Mark 1, 15, he says, Jesus announces, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. This is big news, huge news. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time, it's now. It's coming now. The kingdom of God is a phrase found throughout the Old Testament and the New, obviously. And it talks about a time when God's power, God's will is perfectly made manifest within his area of influence, his kingdom. It means that everything that God wants to happen does happen perfectly. That means there is perfect justice, perfect righteousness, perfect relationships. It's what Jesus refers to when he talks about, or it happens in Revelation, when Jesus to John says that the lion will lay down with the, with the lamb, that there'll be complete harmony. It's just the way God wants life to be. And Jesus begins his ministry and says, that kingdom of God you're longing for, because you're sick to death of the Roman kingdom, the kingdom of Rome with its taxes and its sin and its avarice and all those other things, that will be gone and the kingdom of God has come. That time is now and I am bringing it in. And I think Jesus' disciples would have said, wonderful, amen and amen. That's the vision they bought. That was a vision so compelling, so overwhelming, to be able to help him bring in that kind of a kingdom, which would be amazing. He said, that's why they gave up their jobs. That's why they gave up their family, went away for their families, everything in order to help make that a reality. But by the time we get to Mark chapter 4, They've been with Jesus for a while, you know, and they've invested everything, held nothing back. And they're kind of wondering, you know, can you give us a status report? You know, how are things going on this great vision that uh, we all bought? Um, in Mark chapter 4, he tells them a story, and this is Jesus, well, if, if the disciples are the shareholders, Jesus is the CEO giving a quarterly report. Okay? And this is his quarterly report on how we're doing with bringing in this kingdom that I promised uh, earlier. And he says, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of a mustard seed, which when sown in the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Well, at least he's honest. He's not lying in order to boost uh, the stock price. He's saying, this kingdom of God I talked about, it is small. It is tiny. We don't show up in a Gallup poll. At the present time, not only are we having a uh, leadership team meeting, this is also an international gathering. We're kind of it. And um, now that, that's about where we are. We're the size of a mustard seed. 
You know what a mustard seed looks like. You've been over at Albertsons? You found the uh, spice section where those small little oversized or overpriced small bottles are? And you found the mustard? Not the French's, you know, not the, not, not, but I mean the, the, the seeds. You know, they're little, small little pea things, kind of mustardy colored. Um, as small as those are, those are big compared to what Jesus was referring to. In the Middle East, I'm told that the mustard that they have is much different. It's kind of like a, uh, like a grain of rice, but shrunk, tiny, little black thing. So that if it was on my shirt, you couldn't see it. I could hardly see it. But if I did and did this and flicked it off and it went on that rug, like, forget it. We're not going to find it with a microscope. And Jesus says, you know how we're doing? You know that great dream, vision? Well, we're, um, you can't find us with a microscope. But don't worry, he says, don't worry. Look what he says. He says, don't worry, we may be small now. Yet, yet, verse 32. When it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. That's amazing. Do you know how large one of these uh, Middle Eastern mustard plants grows? Some reports I've read said that they grow up to 18 feet high. 18 feet. I don't know how big a garden you have, but an 18-foot plant in mine kind of stands out. I mean, it dominates. And the branches, they, he says, well, they're so large, birds nest in them. I mean, it's, I mean, it's amazing, this thing. And Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's, it may be small now, maybe insignificant, just us with no education and no money. But we are going to grow. The kingdom of God is going to grow until it dominates the entire world. And so in the same way that a mustard plant dominates a garden, so the kingdom of God is going to spread and its influence is going to cover the entire world, the entire globe, and there's going to be no people, no race, no person who is not under the shadow of God's kingdom. It is small and insignificant now, but it is going to dominate the entire world. You can bet on it. And I think the disciples would have said, Amen and Amen. Now that's vision, isn't it? And that's what I signed up for when I became part of God's kingdom. I want to see it come, and I've spent my life trying to help it and, 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 uh, and to spread His word and be obedient to Him and bring people under the influence of, of, his, of his reign, just like the disciples. But I think the disciples would have said, Okay, that's wonderful. We're going to go from nothing to world domination. Okay, got that. How? What's the plan? What's the strategy? Because there isn't a college degree present. We have no financial resources. We are not influential. Our Rolodex are empty. How exactly is this going to take place? And I think they would have asked that question because of the parable he told immediately before this one. Because that doesn't relieve any of their anxiety. I mean, look at the one he told previously, up in verse 26. In verse 26, he says, The kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. So a similar kind of story, both about the kingdom and seeds. So, 
The man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. So he goes to bed. And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces all by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. So let me get this straight, Jesus. We're going to go from insignificance to world domination, and how's this going to happen? All by itself. Yeah, try that on your uncle. Get a mortgage with that from your banker. How are you going to do all this? Oh, all by itself. Come on. These guys, the disciples, were business people. Many of them had been fishermen. They had their own businesses. They had to go out, buy boats, nets. They have to, they have to get bait. They have to uh, have a working enterprise. They'd have to get loans for that. They have to have a business plan. They'd have to tell people, this is how much it costs, but this is how much fish I think I can catch, how many pounds per day. This is the price of fish. This is my profit level margin. This is what I can expect to pay so much a month over so many years. This is how it's going to work. And they're used to that. And Jesus comes and says, I have no plan like that to tell you about. All I know is it's going to happen automatically. Right. I don't know about you, I couldn't even got married with that kind of a plan. I mean, when I went and decided years ago to, uh, to marry my wife, Nola, and I, you know, we dated for a number of years, and it became obvious to everyone but me that we were going to get married. And when it finally dawned that, uh, that this was a good plan, then I... Uh, made an appointment with her father, which everyone knew why. I was making a one-on-one -on -one appointment with her dad. and So her brothers answered the door and uh, made sure to mock me and make me feel as uncomfortable as possible while they ushered me in the little room while they waited outside listening to every word. I mean, it was that kind of an interview. And I got in and uh, said, well, uh, I would like permission to marry your daughter. And guess what he asked me? How are you going to support her? What's your plan? Well, I knew that one was coming, so I put my feeble little plan out there and said, well, this, I'm going to try this, and then this, and then this, and then the other. And I don't think it was that convincing, but he settled for it. But Jesus doesn't even give him that. He says, how are you going to do this? All by itself. Now, if you're the disciples, and you have invested everything in his vision, how are you feeling right now? A little bit insecure? Wondering... Is this some kind of a salesman who comes and has lots of sizzle, but there's never any steak? Lots of emotion, but no reality? Is this, is, is this my fate now that I've decided to follow Jesus? I mean, have you ever wondered that? I have given up everything so much. I, I devote my time, my energy, my money in order to bring about this kingdom of God. So where are the results? So how come I'm not seeing a better return on my investment? How come there's times when the quarterly report looks like Jesus does, mustard seed style? I said, man, am I smart? Am I dumb? Why? At least give me a plan. It's one thing to be where we are, but how do we know we're not going to stay here? How do we move forward? Give me a plan, Jesus. Give me a plan. But Jesus doesn't give them a plan. Instead, he does something that's a little disconcerting. That very night, he does something that's a little disconcerting. Look down in Mark chapter 4. And down in Mark chapter 4, in verse 35, we read, that on that day, when evening had come, he said, let us go across to the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee. 
And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Now, on a personal level, I really resonate with Jesus here. It's clear Jesus was a boater. I think it's a good thing to be a boater. I pointed that out to my wife a number of years ago when we were driving down the road and I saw a boat for sale on a trailer. And I said, Jesus was a boater. Shouldn't we be like Jesus? And besides, it was a great deal. I mean, a super deal. Little wee boat, 15 foot, uh, hold our two little boys at the time and, and a little trailer. And, and uh, with a price that low, how could you go wrong buying a boat? word of the wise, don't buy a cheap boat. <laughs> the advantage of paying more for a boat up front is that not only do you enjoy the cruise out into the water, but you get to come back in your own power. <laughs> As someone who has enjoyed the indignity of being towed into port, you don't want to go there. That, that does not look good. That, that don't, don't, don't do that. But Jesus said he wanted to go for a boat ride, so I resonate with that. I've had good times in the water, and I'm all in favor of that. He's a boater. I like to boat. That's my kind of guy. I'm a little concerned with when he decided to go for a boat ride. Did you notice that in the text? When did he decide to ask his disciples to take him out in the boat? In the evening. Anyone enjoy going pleasure boating at night? No, you typically don't. Why don't you go pleasure boating at night? Yeah, go for the easy ones. You can't see. It, uh, you, can't, I mean, you can't see the rocks. You can't see the dangers. You can't see the weather. You can't see anything. When I've been out there, you know, they say, take a flashlight. Good plan. Take a flashlight, turn it on. The light just disappears in the black. There's nothing to reflect against it. So it just, it's gone. You can't see a thing. And Jesus says, take him out there. And I think these guys are going, really? You want to go out at night? Like for the view? Okay, well, whatever. And they're an obedient, right? If Jesus wants to go, we'll go. Nothing wrong with what the disciples are doing. They're fully trusting him in spite of the fact he's got no plan. But he, they're, they're, if you want to do it, we'll go. So my hat's off to them. And then we read that in verse 37, uh-oh, a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Guess why they wouldn't have wanted to go out for the ride? In case bad weather comes. And they get out there and guess what happens? Bad weather comes. And not just bad weather, but really bad weather. I mean, this text here, when it says that a great windstorm arose, that could literally be translated as seaquake. Which means that in the same way on land, when you have an earthquake and the, and the earth just opens up and you fall down, so the water was doing just that. It was opening up with these huge waves and they would fall down. How far down? Obviously, I don't know. The text doesn't say, except it was really bad. But it's interesting when you think about other storms that we do know about. Do you remember that movie, The Perfect Storm? George Clooney and... And the Andrea Gale was the boat that was the fishing boat that was featured in that movie, and it sailed from Gloucester. We lived before moving here out near the Boston area, and uh, it was just down the road from where we lived. The Andrea Gale, the boat that sunk, uh, was a, had a, a sister boat had a boat, and were both in Gloucester. And the Andrea Gale went out, 
and two storms came together and merged, and the worst part of both combined with the other, and it was just terrible out there. Almost supernatural, like you would, you're being described here. We don't know how bad the waves were out there for the poor Andrea Gale and her crew, but there were marker buoys in the area designed to measure the height of waves. They were smashed by the waves they were measuring, but their last recorded um, recordings indicated that the waves were in excess of 100 feet. Think about that. 100 feet down, up, down. You're getting airsick in a boat. You are going up and down and up and down and up and down. Nothing is more terrifying because your boat is not big enough to handle those kind of waves. I think something similar was happening here with the disciples. I think they were in a storm that was a sea quake. It was awful. They were absolutely scared to death. Have you ever been scared to death in a boat? Have you ever been scared to death that thinking you were going to drown, you were going to die? We have in an old 15-foot cheap boat. That boat I told you about, great deal, yeah. Well, we were living way north at the time, and so during winter, and everything's frozen, you can't do anything, so we spent the whole winter in the mechanics place getting fixed, because the summer before it was not pretty. Um, but now it was spring, and I had spent all winter with my boys saying, you want to go boating, right? Because they're two little boys, and, and I told them, you know, we're, and first time the, the, the ice has gone off the water, we'll go boating, and, and I showed them the charts. That's a nautical name for maps. I was so proud to learn. And I pointed them. If you go on this chart, there is a park on the other side of this massive lake, one larger than the Sea of Galilee. There's a park with a beach, and we'll go and play on the beach, and in the park, you can go on the swings and everything. Would you like to do that? Well, of course, they're little boys. Oh, yes, Dad, that would be fun, which is my plan, because I have now two votes to my one, and my wife, if she gets nervous, we outvote her. So we're okay. We're going to take this trip, because I want to go for boat ride. So first thing in spring, we get going. We launch the boat. It floated. Good sign. The motor started. Good sign. So we get out and start going through the lake. And I am feeling like um, a captain of my vessel. I'm in charge. I feel good. I wish I'd had one of those hats, you know, with the gold braid, but it really looks silly. Um, so anyway, I still went, looking silly. Um, down and piloting my, my major craft. And as I am, we get out into the water and it's into the maiden lake and it suddenly turns black. Like, I don't mean got dark, I mean someone switched off the lights. And Nola says to me, is this okay? Is this normal? Oh, yeah, it's fine. No I read about it in a magazine, a boating magazine. We're okay. Um, I was lying, but I said it. And um, let's keep going. I'm, I, this is my boat trip. I waited all winter for this trip. We're going to... And we get across, and suddenly the wind dies. Like, it's like perfectly calm, like a mirror. Kent, are you sure that this... Oh, yeah, absolutely no problem. This is even better. No waves at all. We're absolutely fine. What could go wrong now? Pitch black, not a breath of wind. Not my smartest move. We keep going. Suddenly the winds pick up. Waves just stood up out of the water. I mean, it was 
all, everything broke loose. It was just unbelievable. And I'm still trying to head for shore. I mean, because at least there we can get safety, get out of the boat, get on land. And I'm trying to make my way through, and the waves, and we're banging, and I'm slowing the boat down, getting the, the bow up, trying to protect us. And then this rogue wave comes, a huge thing. It comes, splits across the bow, up the windshield, hits me in the face and chest, and down into the boat, takes your breath away. It's ice water, right? Takes my unbelievable. And I'm, now I've got water coming in the boat, but no problem because I've got a bilge pump that doesn't work. Okay, well, no problem. Are we okay, honey? Oh, yeah, no, we're, everything's fine. I got everything under control. But it's hard to convince your wife of that when you take out the bailing bucket and explain to your seven-year-old son, do this as fast as you can. <laughs> but when there's no issue, but Nathan, just faster. Faster. I mean, just keep doing it. I mean, I think I'm going to... And I realize we're way over our heads here. Not literally, figured. In every way, we're, over, we're in deep trouble. I turn around, but now I've got following seas. What's going to happen? We found out later that a tornado had touched down just the other side of the uh, spit that we were trying to reach. And about 20, 25 boats had sunk while tied up at the dock. So we were, I mean, it's the grace of God we weren't caught in that. And we managed, obviously, to escape back. But I'm telling you, on the way back, we were terrified. And I'm sitting there, and on the way back, I'm going, guess what? Good news is we got life jackets. Bad news is we'll be dead in three minutes from hypothermia. Make it easier for the Coast Guard. They don't have to spend much time looking for us. They can find the bodies easily. It's going to be, no, that, that's, just, that's just great. I'm scared that the disciples were that way. They thought they were going to die. This is a huge storm at night. They don't know where to go. And I have done great research and discovered that the Israeli Coast Guard at the time did not require life jackets. And their boats were not fitted with VHF radios. They did not have flares. They did not have anybody to help them. And they did not take swimming lessons. You end up in the water and you're dead. And they know that and they are afraid. And they say to themselves, who was the brilliant guy that decided to go boating at night? <laughs> Jesus. And what's Jesus doing to help them out? What does it say in the text? Jesus, verse 38, was what? Asleep on the back of the boat. Now that's comforting. That's come. We're about to die, and he's having a snooze. Have you ever felt like that? You're in the midst of ministry. You're trying to do your best, and, and nothing is going right. Jesus promises all this, and you know, the ends of the earth, and dominate the world, and mustard seed, and huge plants. And, and meanwhile, why isn't that anything growing here? We got problems in the church, we got problems out the church, inside the church. We got people not responding in the, in the community to the message we're bringing. And you think, oh man. And we're not the first people to face that. Have you read the New Testament? Which of the New Testament churches would you like to join? Which one had it perfect? Which one had it easy? God's people have always asked themselves, how in the world can this happen? Jesus promises all this, but why, we're in the midst of this terrible storm. We think we're going to sink. And there seems to be no way out. Jesus, why did you get us into this mess? We only got here because we're obedient to you. Come on, Jesus, what's the plan? And I think you can hear that in the edge in their voice when we read that they say, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? 
Haven't you ever found yourself praying that to God? Jesus, don't you care what we're facing? Don't you care what we're having to endure in the midst of all of this? Don't you care that, that, that although we've been faithful to you and only been obedient, nothing's going right? Jesus, why won't you tell us the plan? You give us vision and we believe the vision, but how are you going to make it happen? How are you going to operationalize this? How are you going to make it possible and achievable? How is it going to actually work? At that moment, Jesus woke up. And he looked around at the panicked faces of his disciples. He looked around at the raging storm. And he walks from the back to the front of the boat. It didn't take that long, if archaeologists are correct. It was about a 20-foot boat. That's not a long walk. That's not a big boat. How many people were in the boat? Thirteen. Thirteen people, 20-foot boat, raging storm. That thing must have been full of water. Jesus starts marching to the front. The disciples get down low. They don't want the boat to, uh, to go over. They're slowly getting out of the way, crouching in the water. And Jesus, as he walks forward up to his knees in water, his, his robes must have been just covered with water, just matted and stuck to him. When he reached the bow, he put his foot up on the bow plate and looked out over that storm. His hair would have been matted, his, his beard full and hanging with water. And as he stood there, this skinny little guy, he didn't look impressive, but in his eyes was a power and authority that you've never seen. And he looked out of that storm and he said, Shut up! Be still. And like the most obediently trained dog in the world, that's exactly what happened. It shut up. The winds stop. Right then they stopped. I'm not talking it diminished. I'm saying the winds just, the Greek is clear, it just stopped. The waves, huge. When he says stop, they go, oh, you, okay. Boom. They like accordion to nothing. So get the picture here. They're like in maybe a hundred foot waves, about to die. Jesus tells the storm to be quiet and stop, and everything turns from a raging storm to a mill pond. One minute the waves are this high, now there's not a ripple. One minute the waves are so strong it's going to throw, capsize them, and the next minute there's not enough wind to get them to shore. That's not usual. And you'd think they'd be happy. But look what happens. Look in the text. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? But in verse 41, they were filled with great fear. They were scared, even more afraid than they had been before. And said to each other, who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey them. Who is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Do you think they didn't know his name? Of course they knew he was Jesus. They knew his name. But they, they didn't before ever understand this side of Jesus that was displayed in the storm. They knew before that, that he was a teacher. 
That he was a rabbi, that he was a counselor, that he was a friend, that he was all these things. But here in this storm, they saw a different part of him. They saw a part that they had never seen before. Now, just think. Jesus had complete and total control over nature. And he exercised that control by just speaking words. Right? Can you think of any other time in the Bible when God exercised complete control over nature by just speaking words? When? Genesis 1. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Let dry ground appear, and dry ground appear. Let animals, let plants, I mean, just the power of his word. And this is the same, same thing happened here. I mean, this is what, what Paul was saying in Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1, and when he's talking about Christ, he says, guess what? He is the image of the invisible God. He is the invisible God, firstborn, the Lord over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions. All things were created through him and for him, and he holds all things together. Jesus is God. And in this moment, when he speaks those words and creation answers, they see that Jesus isn't just a man. He is Emmanuel, God with us. They realize he's, he is a man, but he's more than a man. He is God in the flesh. And they are afraid, like every other person in the Bible who has truly caught a glimpse of God. In the same way that Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, goes into the temple. And he sees God high and lifted up with his train filling the temple. When he sees God as he truly is, he says, woe is me, I am undone. I'm going to die seeing him. He's deathly afraid. In the same way that the Egyptians, when they were being freed, or the Israelites, when they were being freed from the Egyptians, when they saw the chariots of the world's greatest superpower destroyed in the Red Sea by God's power, just eliminated, when they saw that power, when they say God revealed so nakedly, they were greatly afraid. Because this is an awesome God, powerful beyond measure. And the disciples here, when, they, when Jesus does this miracle, sees, sees Jesus as he truly is, as God, very God for the first time, and they are filled with fear. Do you notice what Jesus never did? Jesus never told them the plan. He never explained the details of how this kingdom was going to grow. He could have. He's sovereign. He's Alpha the Omega. He knows the beginning and the end. He knows all things. But he doesn't always share his plans with us, does he? He didn't with them. Instead, what he did was share himself with them. He says, you don't need to know the plans. Master, they were saying, show us the plans. Master, we want plans. We want plans. Jesus says, you don't understand. When you know who your master is, you will know that the master is the plan. When you have me with you, you are guaranteed to be successful. Because I am God in the flesh. And nothing is too powerful for me. 
I created this world with my words. I can change this world with my words. Nothing can thwart my will. Oh, you, he says to them, oh, you of little faith, why are you still afraid? Why won't you put your faith, not in a plan, but put your faith in me? It is I who guarantee that the kingdom is coming. It is I who guarantee that the church will triumph. It is I who guarantee that the end will be as I have written. I personally guarantee it, and I can do so because I am God, very God. And that's the confidence we have to, do, to go about and help build His kingdom and follow the commands of our Lord. When He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, He's not saying, go in your own strength. He's not saying, go with your own plans. He's not saying go with your own intellect. He's saying go and lo, I will be with you to the, to the ends of the earth. We don't go on our own. We go with God. We go with the person of Jesus Christ. We may not know all the master's plans, but we know the master. We know the plan because the master is the plan. I know people say it, but it's true. God is awesome. Who can stand against Him? And when He's in our boat and we're following His directions, we will not sink. We cannot fail. He personally and powerfully guarantees it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, will you teach us? Will you help us to keep our eyes off the storm and turn them to you? Father, allow us to see you as the awesome, powerful, unstoppable God you are and know that it is you who will bring in your kingdom. It is you who guarantees that your church will succeed. Father, you are our master. And you are the plan. Amen.